Selected Entries for the Letter C from the Encyclopaedia Britannica, 11th edition. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Convolvulaceae. A botanical natural order belonging to the series Tubiflori of the sympetalous group of dicotyledons. It contains about 40 genera with more than 1,000 species and is found in all parts of the world except the coldest, but is especially well developed in tropical Asia and tropical America. The most characteristic members of the order are twining plants with generally smooth heart-shaped leaves and large showy white or purple flowers, as for instance the greater bindweed of English hedges, Calistigia sepium, and many species of the genus Ipomea, the largest of the order, including the convolvulus major of gardens and morning glory. The creeping or trailing type is a common one, as in the English bindweed, convolvulus arvensis, which has also a tendency to climb, and Calistegia soldanella, the sea bindweed, the long creeping stem of which forms a sand binder on English seashores. A widespread and efficient tropical sand binder is Ipomea pescapri. One of the commonest tropical weeds, Evolvulus alcinoides, has slender long trailing stems with small leaves and flowers. In hot, dry districts such as Arabia and northeast tropical Africa, genera have been developed with a low, much-branched, dense, shrubby habit, with small hairy leaves and very small flowers. An exceptional type in the order is represented by Humbertia, a native of Madagascar, which forms a large tree. The dodder is a genus, Cuscuta, of leafless parasites with slender thread-like twining stems. The flowers stand singly in the leaf axils or form few or many flowered cymose inflorescences. The flowers are sometimes crowded into small heads. The bracts are usually scale-like, but sometimes foliaceous, as for instance in Calistegia, where they are large and envelop the calyx. The parts of the flower are in fives in calyx, corolla and stamens, followed by two carpels which unite to form a superior ovary. The sepals, which are generally free, show much variation in size, shape and covering, and afford valuable characters for the distinction of genera or subgenera. The corolla is generally funnel-shaped, more rarely bell-shaped or tubular. The outer face is often marked out in longitudinal areas, five well-defined areas tapering from base to apex, and marked with longitudinal striae, corresponding to the middle of the petals, and alternating with five non-striated, weaker, triangular areas. In the bud, the latter are folded inwards, the stronger areas being exposed and showing a twist to the right. The slender filaments of the stamens vary widely, often in the same flower. The anthers are linear to ovate in shape, attached at the back to the filament, and open lengthwise. Some importance attaches to the form of the pollen grains. The two principal forms are ellipsoidal with longitudinal bands forming the convolvulus type, and a spherical form with a spiny surface known as the ipomea type. The ovary is generally two-chambered, with two inverted ovules standing side by side at the inner angle of each chamber. The style is simple or branched, and the stigma is linear, capitate or globose in form. These variations afford means for distinguishing the different genera. The fruit is usually a capsule opening by valves. The seeds, where four are developed, are each shaped like the quadrant of a sphere. The seed coat is smooth, or sometimes warty or hairy. The embryo is large, with generally broad, folded, notched or bilobed cotyledons, surrounded by a horny endosperm. Cuscuta has a thread-like, spirally twisted embryo, with no trace of cotyledons. The large showy flowers are visited by insects, for the honey which is secreted by a ring-like disc below the ovary. 
large-flowered species of Ipomoea with narrow tubes are adapted for the visits of honey-seeking birds. The largest genus, Ipomoea, has about 400 species distributed throughout the warmer parts of the earth. Convolvulus has about 150 to 200 species, mainly in temperate climates. The genus is principally developed in the Mediterranean area and Western Asia. Cuscuta contains nearly 100 species in the warmer and temperate regions. Two are native in Britain. The tubers of Ipomoea batatas are rich in starch and sugar, and as the sweet potato form one of the most widely distributed foods in the warmer parts of the earth. Several members of the order are used medicinally for the strong purging properties of the milky juice, latex, which they contain. Scammony is the dried latex from the underground stem of Convolvulus scammonia, a native of the Levant, while Jalap is the product of the tubercles of Exogonium perga, a native of Mexico. Species of Ipomoea, Morning Glory, Convolvulus, and Calistegia are cultivated as ornamental plants. Convolvulus arvensis, bindweed, is a pest in fields and gardens on account of its widespreading underground stem, and many of the dodders, Coscuta, cause damage to crops. Cookery, Latin coccus, a cook. The art of preparing and dressing food of all sorts for human consumption, of converting the raw materials, by the application of heat or otherwise, into a digestible and pleasing condition, and generally ministering to the satisfaction of the appetite and the delight of the palate. We may take it that some form of cookery has existed from the earliest times, and its progress has been from the simple to the elaborate, dominated partly by the foods accessible to man, partly by the stage of civilization he has attained, and partly by the appliances at his command for the purpose either of treating the food or of consuming it when served. The developed art of cookery is necessarily a late addition, if it may be considered to be included at all, to the list of fine arts. Originally it is a purely industrial and useful art. Man, says a French writer, was born a roaster, and pour être cuisinier, il a besoin de la devenir. The ancients were great eaters, but strangers to the subtler refinements of the palate. The gods were supposed to love the smell of fried meat, while their nectar and ambrosia represented an ideal which, though preserved as a phrase, would hardly satisfy a modern epicure. The ancients were poorly provided with pots and pans, except of a simple order, or with the appurtenances of a kitchen, and they were sadly to seek in the requisites of a modern table. So long as men ate with their hands, no dainty confection was suitable. The viands were set forth in a straightforward style fit for their requirements. Plain cooking, which after all can never become obsolete, was the only sort. Oddities, no doubt, were the luxuries, and we can see today in the ethnological accounts of contemporary savages and backward civilizations a fair representation of the cookeries of the ancients. The luxuries of the Chinese are, in their way, a survival of long ages of a cookery which, to Western civilization, is grotesque. Even if it is an historic impertinence, it is impossible for the countries of Western civilization to regard the fine flower of their own evolution as other than the highest pitch of progress. Outre temps, outre mur. To the Chinaman, French cooking may possibly be as grotesque as to an Englishman the Chinaman's hundred-year-old buried egg, black and tasteless. The history of comparative cookery is bound up with the physical possibilities of each country and its products, and if we attempt to mark out the stages in the evolution of cookery as a fine art, it is necessarily as understood by the so-called civilized peoples of the West in their culmination at the present day. It is obvious that opportunity has dominated its history, for the art of cookery is to some extent the product of an increased refinement of taste consequent on culture and increase of wealth. To this extent it is a decadent art, ministering to the luxury of man and to his progressive inclination to be pampered and have his appetite tickled. 
It is thus only remotely connected with the mere necessities of nutrition or the science of dietetics. Mere hunger, though the best source, will not produce cookery, which is the art of sources. For centuries its elaboration consisted mainly of a progressive variety of foods, the richest and rarest being sought out, and their nature depended on what was most difficult to obtain. The Greeks learnt by contact with Asia to increase the sumptuous character of their banquets, but we know little enough of their ideas of gastronomy. Athens was the centre of luxury. According to our chief authority Athenaeus, Archistratus of Gela, the friend of the son of Pericles, the guide of Epicurus, and author of the Hedufagetica, was a great traveller, and took pains to get information as to how the delicacies of the table were prepared in different parts. His lost work was versified by Aeneas. Other connoisseurs seem to have been Numanius of Heraclea, Hegemon of Thassos, Philogenes of Lucas, Simonaclides of Chios, and Tindarides of Sicyon. The Romans, emerging from their pristine simplicity, borrowed from the Greeks their achievements in gastronomic pleasure. We read of this or that Roman gourmet, such as Lucullus, his extravagances and his luxury. The name of the connoisseur Apicius, after whom a work of the time of Heliogabalus is called, comes down to us in association with a manual of cookery, and from Macrobius and Petronius we can gather very interesting glimpses of the Roman idea of a menu. In the latter empire, tradition still centred round the Roman cookery favoured by the geographical position of Italy, while the customs and natural products of the remoter parts of Europe gradually begin to assert themselves as the Middle Ages progress. It is, however, not till the Renaissance, and then too, with Italy as the starting point, that the history of modern cookery really begins. Meanwhile, cookery may be studied rather in the architecture of kitchens and the development of their appurtenances and personnel than in any increase in the subtleties of the art. The ideal was inevitably gross. The end was feeding, inextricably associated in all ages with cooking, but as distinct from its fine fleur as gluttony from gastronomy. Montaigne's references to the revival of cookery in France by Catherine de Medici indicate that the new attention paid to the art was really novel. She brought Italian cooks to Paris and introduced there a cultured simplicity which was unknown in France before. It is to the Italians, apparently, that later developments are originally due. It is clearly established, for instance, says Abraham Haywood in his Art of Dining, that the Italians introduced ices into France. Fricandeaux were invented by the chef of Leo X, and Coriate, in his Crudities, writing in the time of James I, says that he was called Fursifer, evidently in contemptuous jest, by his friends, from his using those Italian neatnesses called forks. The use of the fork and spoon marked an epoch in the progress of dining, and consequently of cookery. Under Louis the Fourteenth, further advances were made. His maître d'hôtel, Béchamel, is famous for his sauce, and Vatel, the great Condé's cook, was a celebrated artist of whose suicide in despair at the tardy arrival of the fish which he had ordered, Madame de Sévigné relates a moving story. The Prince de Soubise, immortalized by his onion sauce, also had a famous chef. In England, the names of certain cookery books may be noted, such as Sir J. Eliot's, 1539, Abraham Veal's, 1575, and the widow's treasure 1625 the accomplished cook by robert may appeared in 1665 and from its preface we learn that the author who speaks disparagingly of french cookery but more gratefully of italian and spanish was the son of a cook and had studied abroad and under his father circa 1610 at lady dormer's and he speaks of that time as the days wherein were produced the triumphs and trophies of cookery. From his description they consisted of most fantastic and elaborately built-up dishes, 
intended to amuse and startle no less than to satisfy the appetite and palate. Louis the fifteenth was a great gourmet, and his reign saw many developments in the culinary art. The mayonnaise, originally maonnaise, is ascribed to the Duc de Richelieu. Such dishes as potage à la Xavier, caillis à la mirepoix, chartreuse à la mot-conseil, poulets à la villeroi, potage à la condé, gigot à la maï, owe their titles to celebrities of the day, and the pompadour gave her name to various others. The Jesuits, Brunois and Beaujon, who wrote a preface to a contemporary treatise on cookery, 1739, described the modern art as more simple, more appropriate, and more cunning than that of old days, giving the ingredients the same union as painters give to colours, and harmonising all the tastes. The very phrase cordon bleu, strictly applied only to a woman cook, arose from an enthusiastic recognition of female merit by the king himself. Madame du Barry, piqued at his opinion that only a man could cook to perfection, had a dinner prepared for him by a cuisinière with such success that the delighted monarch demanded that the artist should be named in order that so precious a cuisinier might be engaged for the royal household. Allons donc, la France, retorted the ex-grisette. Have I caught you at last? It is no cuisinier at all, but a cuisinière, and I demand a recompense for her, worthy both of her and of your majesty. Your royal bounty has made my negro Zamor governor of Lucienne, and I cannot accept less than a cordon bleu, the royal order of the Saint-Esprit, for my cuisinière. The French Revolution was temporarily a blow to Parisian cookery, as to everything else of the Ancien Régime. Not a single turbot in the market, was the lament of Grimaud de la Reynière, the great gourmet, and author of the Manuel des Amphitryons, 1808. But while it fell heavily on the class of noble amphitryons, it had one remarkable effect on the art which was epoch-making. It is from that time that we notice the rise of the Parisian restaurants. To 1770 is ascribed the first of these, the Champ d'Oiseaux, in the Rue des Poulies. In 1789 there were a hundred. In 1804, when the Almanach des Gourmands the first sustained effort at investing gastronomy with the dignity of an art was started. There were between five hundred and six hundred, and in 1814, to such an extent had the restaurants attracted the culinary talent of Paris, that the allied monarchs, on arriving there, had to contract with the two brothers Verri for the supply of their table. Among the great gastronomic names of Napoleon's day was that of his chancellor, Cambacere, of whose dinners many stories are told. Robert, the eponym of the sauce Robert, Richaud and Merillion, were at this period esteemed the Raphael, Michelangelo, and Rubens of cookery, while A. Beauvilliers, author of Art de Cuisine, and Carême, note, author of the Maître d'Hôtel Français, and chef at different times to the Tsar Alexander I, Talleyrand, George the Fourth and Baron Rothschild, end note, were no less celebrated. Perhaps the greatest name of all in the history of the literature of cookery is that of Antelm Bria Savarin, seventeen fifty five to eighteen twenty six, the French judge and author of the Physiologie du Goût, eighteen twenty five, the classic of gastronomy. In England, Louis Eustache Ude. Charles Elmé Francatelli and Alexis Soyer carried on the tradition, all being not only cooks, but authors of treatises on the art. The original, 1835, of Thomas Walker, the Lambeth police magistrate, is another work which has inspired later pens. Like the Physiologie du Goût, it is no mere cookery book, but a compound of observation and philosophy. Among simple handbooks, Mrs. Glasses, Dr. Kitchener's, and Mrs. Rundle's were standard English works in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and in France the Cuisinière de la Campagne, 1818, went through edition after edition. An interesting old work is Dr. Pegg's 
Form of Curie, 1780, which includes some historical reflections on the subject. We have some good families in England, he says, of the name of Cook or Coke. Depend on it, they all originally sprang from real professional cooks, and they need not be ashamed of their extraction any more than porters, butlers, etc. He points out that cooks in early days were of some importance. William the Conqueror bestowed land on his Coquorum Prepositus and Coquus Regius, and Doomsday Book records the bestowal of a manor on Robert Argilon by the service of a dish called de la Groot on the king's coronation day. At the present time, whatever the local varieties of cooking and the difference of national custom, French cooking is admittedly the ideal of the culinary art. Directly we leave the plain roast and boiled. And the spread of cosmopolitan hotels and restaurants over England, America, and the European continent has largely accustomed the whole civilized world to the Parisian type. The improvements in the appliances and appurtenances of the kitchen have made the whole world kin in the arts of dining, but the French chef remains the typical master of his craft. Schools of cookery have been added to the educational machine. The literature of the subject has passed beyond enumeration. It is unnecessary here to pursue so vast a practical subject into detail, but the following notes on broiling, roasting, baking, boiling, stewing, and frying may be useful. Broiling. The earliest method of cooking was probably burying seeds and flesh in hot ashes, a kind of broiling on all the surfaces at the same time, which when properly done is the most delicate kind of cooking. Broiling is now done over a clear fire, extending at least two inches beyond the edges of the gridiron, which should slightly incline towards the cook. It is usual to rub the bars with a piece of suet for meat and chalk for fish, to prevent the thing broiled from being marked with the bars of the gridiron. In this kind of cookery, the object is to coagulate as quickly as possible all the albumin on the surface and seal up the pores of the meat so as to keep in all the juices and flavour. It is, therefore, necessarily thoroughly to warm the gridiron before putting on the meat, or the heat of the fire is conducted away while the juices and flavour of the meat run into the fire. Broiling is a simple kind of cookery, and one well suited to invalids and persons of delicate appetites. There is no other way in which small quantities of meat can be so well and so quickly cooked. Broiling cannot be well done in front of an open fire, because one side of the meat is exposed to a current of cold air. A pair of tongs should be used instead of a fork for turning all broiled meat and fish. Roasting. Two conditions are necessary for good roasting. A clear bright fire and frequent basting. Next to boiling or stewing, it is the most economical method of cooking. The meat at first should be placed close to a brisk fire for five minutes to coagulate the albumen. It should then be drawn back a short distance and roasted slowly. If a meat screen be used, it should be placed before the fire to be moderately heated before the meat is put to roast. The centre of gravity of the fire should be a little above the centre of gravity of the joint. No kitchen can be complete without an open range for it is almost impossible to have a properly roasted joint in closed kitcheners. The heat radiated from a good open fire quickly coagulates the albumen on the surface, and thus, to a large extent, prevents that which is fluid in the interior from solidifying. The connective tissue which unites the fibres is gradually converted into gelatin and rendered easily soluble. The fibrin and albumen appear to undergo a higher oxidation and are more readily dissolved. The fat cells are gradually broken, and the liquid fat unites to a small extent with the chloride of sodium and the tribasic phosphate of sodium contained in the serum of the blood. It is easily seen that roasting, by coagulating the external albumin, keeps together the most valuable parts of the meat, until they have gradually and slowly undergone the desired change. This surface coagulation is not sufficient to prevent the free access of the oxygen of the surrounding air. 
The empyrematic oils generated on the surface are neither wholesome nor agreeable, and these are perhaps better removed by roasting than any other method except broiling. The chief object is to retain as much as possible all the sapid juicy properties of the meat, so that at the first cut the gravy flows out of a rich reddish colour, and this can only be accomplished by a quick coagulation of the surface albumen. The time for roasting varies slightly with the kind of meat and the size of the joint. As a rule, beef and mutton require a quarter of an hour to the pound, veal and pork about seventeen minutes to the pound. To tell whether the joint is done, press the fleshy part with a spoon. If the meat yields easily, it is done. Baking meat is in many respects objectionable, and should never be done if any other method is available. The gradual disuse of open grates for roasting has led to a practice of first baking and then browning before the fire. This method completely reverses the true order of cooking by beginning with the lowest temperature and finishing with the highest. Baked meat has never the delicate flavour of roast meat, nor is it so digestible. The vapours given off by the charring of the surface cannot freely escape, and the meat is cooked in an atmosphere charged with empyrematic oil. A brick or earthenware oven is preferable to iron, because the porous nature of the bricks absorbs a good deal of the vapour. When potatoes are baked with meat, they should always be first parboiled, because they take a longer time to bake and the moisture rising from the potatoes retards the process of baking and makes the meat sodden. A baked meat pie, though not always very digestible, is far less objectionable than plain baked meat. In the case of a meat pie, the surfaces of the meat are protected by a bad conductor of heat from that charring of the surface which generates empyrematic vapours, and the fat and gravy, gradually rising in temperature, assist the cooking and such cooking more nearly resembles stewing than baking. The process may go on for a long time after the removal of the meat from the oven, if surrounded with flannel or some bad conductor of heat. The Cornish pasty is the best example of this kind of cooking. Meat, fish, game, parboiled vegetables, apples, or anything that fancy suggests, are surrounded with a thick flour and water crust, and slowly baked. When removed from the oven and packed in layers of flannel, the pasty will keep hot for hours. When baked dishes contain eggs, it should be remembered that the albumen becomes harder and more insoluble according to the time occupied in cooking. About the same time is required for baking as roasting. Boiling is one of the easiest methods of cooking, but a successful result depends on a number of conditions which, though they appear trifling, are nevertheless necessary. The fire must be watched so as properly to regulate the heat. The saucepan should be scrupulously clean and have a closely fitting lid, and be large enough to hold sufficient water to well cover and surround the meat, and all scum should be removed as it comes to the surface. The addition of small quantities of cold water will assist the rising of the scum. For all cooking purposes, clean rainwater is to be preferred. Among cooks, a great difference of opinion exists as to whether meat should be put into cold water and gradually brought to the boiling point, or should be put into boiling water. This, like many other unsettled questions in cookery, is best decided by careful scientific experiment and observation. If a piece of meat be put into water at a temperature of 60 degrees and gradually raised to 212 degrees, the meat is undergoing a gradual loss of its soluble and nutritious properties which are dissolved in the water. From the surface to the interior, the albumen is partially dissolved out of the meat. The fibres become hard and stringy and the thinner the piece of meat, the greater the loss of all those sapid constituents which make boiled meat savoury, juicy, and palatable. To put meat into cold water is clearly the best method for making soups and broth. It is the French method of preparing the pot au feu, but the meat, at the end of the operation, has lost much of that juicy, sapid property which makes boiled meat so acceptable. 
the practice of soaking fresh meat in cold water before cooking is for the same reasons highly objectionable if necessary wipe it with a clean cloth but in the case of salted smoked and dried meats soaking for several hours is indispensable and the water should be occasionally changed the other method of boiling meat has the authority of baron liebig who recommends putting the meat into water when in a state of ebullition and after five minutes the saucepan is to be drawn aside and the contents kept at a temperature of a hundred and sixty two degrees note fifty degrees below boiling end note the effect of boiling water is to coagulate the albumin on the surface of the meat which prevents but not entirely the juices from passing into the water and meat thus boiled has more flavour and has lost much less in weight to obtain well flavoured boiled meat the idea of soups or broth must be a secondary consideration it is however impossible to cook a piece of meat in water without extracting some of its juices and nutriment and the liquor should in both cases be made into a soup stewing when meat is slowly cooked in a close vessel it is said to be stewed this method is generally adopted in the preparation of made dishes different kinds of meat may be used or only one kind according to taste the better the meat the better the stew but by carefully stewing the coarsest and roughest parts will become soft tender and digestible which would not be possible by any other kind of cooking odd pieces of meat and trimmings and bones can often be purchased cheaply and may be turned into good food by stewing bones although containing little meat contain from thirty nine to forty nine per cent of gelatin the large bones should be broken into small pieces and allowed to simmer till every piece is white and dry gelatin is largely used both in the form of jellies and soups lean meat free from blood is best for stewing and when cut into convenient pieces it should be slightly browned in a little butter or dripping constant attention is necessary during this process to prevent burning the meat should be covered with soft water or better a little stock and set aside to simmer for four or five hours according to the nature of the material when vegetables are used these should also be slightly browned and added at intervals so as not materially to lower the temperature stews may be thickened by the addition of pearl barley sago rice potatoes oatmeal flour etc and flavoured with herbs and condiments according to taste although stewing is usually done in a stewpan or saucepan with a close-fitting cover a good stone jar with a well-fitting lid is preferable in the homes of working people this is better than a metal saucepan and can be more easily kept clean it retains the heat longer and can be placed in the oven or covered with hot ashes the common red jar is not suitable it does not stand the heat so well as a grey jar and the red glaze inside often gives way in the presence of salt the lid of a vessel used for stewing should be removed as little as possible an occasional shake will prevent the meat from sticking at the end of the operation all the fat should be carefully removed frying lard oil butter or dripping may be used for frying there are two methods of frying the dry method as in frying a pancake and the wet method as when the thing fried is immersed in a bath of hot fat in the former case a frying pan is used in the other a frying kettle or stew pan it is usual for most things to have a wire frying basket the things to be fried are placed in the basket and immersed at the proper temperature in the hot fat the fat should gradually rise in temperature over a slow fire till it attains nearly four hundred degrees fahrenheit great care is required to fry properly if the temperature is too low the things immersed in the fat are not fried but soddened if on the other hand the temperature is too high they are charred the temperature of the fat varies slightly with the nature of things to be fried fish cutlets croquettes rissoles and fritters are well fried at a temperature of three hundred and eighty degrees fahrenheit 
potatoes chops and white bait are better fried at a temperature of 400 degrees fahrenheit care must be taken not to lower the temperature too much by introducing too many things the most successful frying is when the fat rises two or three degrees during the frying fried things should be of a golden brown color crisp and free from fat when fat or oil has been used for fish it must be kept for fish it is customary first to use fat for croquettes rissoles fritters and any other delicate things and then to take it for fish everything fried in fat should be placed on bibulous paper to absorb any fat on the surfaces copper pyrites or chalcopyrite a copper iron sulphide cufes2 an important ore of copper the name copper pyrites is from the german kupferkies which was used as far back as 1546 by g agricola chalcopyrite from greek chalcos copper and pyrites was proposed by j f henkel in his pyritologia oda Keith historia 1725 by the ancients copper pyrites was included with other minerals under the term pyrites though the copper ore from cyprus referred to by aristotle as calcites may possibly have been identical with this mineral chalcopyrite crystallizes in the tetragonal system with inclined hemihedrism but the form is so nearly cubic that it was not recognized as tetragonal until accurate measurements were made in 1822 crystals are usually tetrahedral in aspect owing to the large development of the sphenoid p 111 the faces of this form are dull and striated while the smaller faces of the complementary sphenoid p prime 111 are bright and smooth the combination of these two forms produces a figure resembling an octahedron the angle between p and p prime being 70 degrees seven and a half minutes corresponding to the angle 70 degrees 32 minutes of the regular octahedron the other faces shown in figure one are the basal pinacoid a naught naught one and two square pyramids b 101 and c 201 crystals are usually twinned and are often complex and difficult to decipher there are three twin laws the twin planes being 111 101 and 110 respectively twinning according to the first law is effected by rotation about an axis normal to the sphenoidal face 111 the resulting form resembling the twins of blend and spinel twinning according to the second law can only be explained by reflection across the plane 101 not by rotation about an axis chalcopyrite affords an excellent example of this comparatively rare type of symmetric twinning interpenetration twins with 110 as twin plane are of very rare occurrence crystals have imperfect cleavages parallel to the eight faces of the pyramid c 201 the fracture is conchoidal and the material is brittle hardness 4 specific gravity 4.2 the color is brass yellow and the luster metallic the streak or color of the powder is greenish black the mineral is especially liable to surface alteration tarnishing with beautiful iridescent colors a blue color usually predominates owing probably to the alteration of the chalcopyrite to covellite cus the massive and compact mineral frequently exhibits this iridescent tarnish and is consequently known to miners as peacock ore or peacock copper the massive mineral sometimes occurs in mammillary and botryoidal forms with a smooth brassy surface and is then known to cornish miners as blister copper ore chalcopyrite or copper pyrites may be readily distinguished from iron pyrites or pyrites which it somewhat resembles in appearance by its deeper color and lower degree of hardness the former is easily scratched by a knife whilst the latter can only be scratched with difficulty or not at all chalcopyrite is decomposed by nitric acid with separation of sulphur and formation of a green solution 
Ammonia added in excess to this solution changes the green colour to deep blue and precipitates red ferric hydroxide. The chemical formula CuFeS2 corresponds with the percentage composition Cu equals 34.5, Fe equals 30.5, S equals 35.0. Analyses usually, however, show the presence of more iron owing to the intimate admixture of iron pyrites. Traces of gold, silver, selenium or thallium are sometimes present, and the mineral is sometimes worked as an ore of gold or silver. Chalcopyrite is of wide distribution and is the commonest of the ores of copper. It occurs in metalliferous veins, often in association with iron pyrites, calibite, blend, etc., and in Cornwall and Devon, where it is abundant, with cassiterite. The large deposits at Falun in Sweden occur with serpentine in gneiss, and those at Montecatini near Volterra in the province of Pisa, serpentine and cabro. At Ramelsberg in the Hartz it forms a bed in argillaceous schist, and at Mansfield in Thuringia it occurs in Kupferschiefer, with ores of nickel and cobalt. Extensive deposits are mined in the United States, particularly at Butte in Montana, and in Namaqualand, South Africa. Well-crystallized specimens are met with at many localities, for example, formerly at Wheel Toen, hence the name Toenite, which has been applied to the species, in the St. Agnes district of Cornwall, at Freiberg in Saxony, and Joplin, Missouri. Coprolites, from Greek, copros, dung, and Greek lithos, stone. The fossilized excrements of extinct animals. The discovery of their true nature was made by Dr. William Buckland, who observed that certain convoluted bodies occurring in the Lias of Gloucestershire had the form which would have been produced by their passage in the soft state through the intestines of reptiles or fishes. These bodies had long been known as fossil fir cones and bezoar stones. Buckland's conjecture that they were of faecal origin and similar to the album Graecum, or excrement of hyenas, was confirmed by Dr. W. Prout, who on analysis found they consisted essentially of calcium phosphate and carbonate, and not infrequently contained fragments of unaltered bone. The name coprolites was accordingly given to them by Buckland, who subsequently expressed his belief that they might be found useful in agriculture on account of the calcium phosphate they contained. The liasic coprolites are described by Buckland as resembling oblong pebbles or kidney potatoes. They are mostly two to four inches long and from one to two inches in diameter, but those of the larger ichthyosauri are of much greater dimensions. In colour they vary from ash grey to black and their fracture is conchoidal. Internally they are found to consist of a lamina twisted upon itself and externally they generally exhibit a tortuous structure produced before the cloaca was reached by the spiral valve of a compressed small intestine, as in skates, sharks, and dogfishes. The surface shows also vascular impressions and corrugations due to the same cause. Often the bones, teeth, and scales of fishes are to be found dispersed through the coprolites, and sometimes the bones of small ichthyosauri, which were apparently a prey to the larger marine saurians. Coprolites have been found at Lyme Regis, enclosed by the ribs of ichthyosauri, and in the remains of several species of fish, also in the abdominal cavities of a species of fossil fish, Macropoma mantelli, from the chalk of Lewis. Professor T. Jager has described coprolites from the alum slate of Galdorf in Württemberg, the fish coprolites of Birdie House and of Newcastle under Lyme are of Carboniferous age. The so-called beetle stones of the coal formation of Newhaven near Leith, which have mostly a coprolite nucleus, have been applied to various ornamental purposes by lapidaries. The name collolites from the Greek colon, the large intestine, Greek lithos stone, was given by Agassiz to fossil worm-like bodies found in the lithographic slate of Solenhofen, which he determined to be either the petrified intestines or contents of the intestines of fishes. The bone bed of Axmouth in Devonshire and Westbury 
and Austin, Gloucestershire, in the Penarth or Rytic series of strata, contains the scales, teeth and bones of saurians and fishes, together with abundance of coprolites. But neither there nor at Lyme Regis is there a sufficient quantity of phosphatic material to render the working of it for agricultural purposes remunerative. The term coprolites has been made to include all kinds of phosphatic nodules employed as manures, such, for example, as those obtained from the coralline and the red crag of Suffolk. At the base of the red crag in that county is a bed three to eighteen inches thick, containing rolled fossil bones, cetacean and fish teeth, and shells of the crag period, with nodules or pebbles of phosphatic matter derived from the London clay and often investing fossils from that formation. These are distinguishable from the grey chalk coprolites by their brownish ferruginous colour and smooth appearance. When ground, they give a yellowish-red powder. These nodules were at first taken by Professor J. S. Henslow for coprolites. They were afterwards termed by Buckland pseudo-coprolites, the nodules having been imbued with phosphatic matter from their matrix in the London clay were dislodged, says Buckland, by the waters of the seas of the first period, and accumulated by myriads at the bottom of those shallow seas, where is now the coast of Suffolk. Here they were long rolled together with the bones of large mammalia, fishes, and with the shells of molluscous creatures that lived in shells. From the bottom of this sea they have been raised to form the dry lands along the shores of Suffolk, whence they are now extracted as articles of commercial value being ground to powder in the mills of Mr. afterwards Sir John, Laws, at Deptford, to supply our farms with a valuable substitute for guano, under the accepted name of coprolite manure. The phosphatic nodules occurring throughout the red crag of Suffolk are regarded as derived from the coralline crag. The Suffolk beds have been worked since 1846, and immense quantities of coprolite have also been obtained from Essex, Norfolk, and Cambridgeshire. The Cambridgeshire coprolites are believed to be derived from deposits of galt age. They are obtained by washing from a stratum about a foot thick, resting on the galt at the base of the chalk marl, and probably homotaxius with the chloritic marl. An acre used to yield, on an average, 300 tons of phosphatic nodules, value £750. About £140 per acre was paid for the lease of the land, which after two years was restored to its owners, resoiled and levelled. Placaculi have been found attached to these coprolites, showing that they were already hard bodies when lying at the bottom of the chalk ocean. The Cambridgeshire coprolites are either amorphous or finger-shaped. The coprolites from the green sand are of a black or dark brown colour, while those from the galt are greenish-white on the surface, brownish-black internally. Samples of Cambridgeshire and Suffolk coprolite have been found by A. Wilker to give on analysis phosphoric acid equivalent to about 55 and 52.5 of tribasic calcium phosphate respectively. Note, Journal of the Royal Agricultural Society, England, 1860, volume 21, page 358, end note. The following analysis of a sorio coprolite from Lyme Regis is given by T. J. Herapath, Ibidem, volume 12, page 91. Water, 3.976, organic matter, 2.001, calcium sulphate, 2.026, calcium carbonate 28.121, calcium fluoride not determined, calcium and magnesium phosphate 53.996, magnesium carbonate 0.423, aluminic phosphate 1.276, ferric phosphate 6.182, silica 0.773, total 98.734. An ichthyocoprolite from Tenby was found to contain 15.4% of phosphoric anhydride. The pseudocoprolites of the Suffolk crag have been estimated by Herapath to be as rich in phosphates as the true ichthyocoprolites and sauriocoprolites of other formations, the proportion of P2O5 contained varying between 12.5 and 37.25%. The average proportion, however, being 32 or 33 percent. 
Coprolite is reduced to powder by powerful mills of peculiar construction, furnished with granite and bure stones, before being treated with concentrated sulphuric acid. The acid renders it available as a manure by converting the calcium phosphate, CA3P2O8, that it contains into the soluble monocalcium salt, CAH4P2O8, or superphosphate. The phosphate thus produced forms an efficacious turnip manure and is quite equal in value to that produced from any other source. The chloritic marl in the Wealden district furnishes much phosphatic material, which has been extensively worked at Froyle. In the vicinity of Farnham, it contains a bed of coprolites of considerable extent and two to fifteen feet in thickness. Specimens of these from the Dippen Hall pits, analysed by Monsieur J. M. Payne and J. T. Way, showed the presence of phosphates equivalent to 55.96 of bone earth. Note, Journal of the Royal Agricultural Society, England, Volume 9, page 56. End note. Phosphatic nodules occur also in the chloritic marl of the Isle of Wight and Dorsetshire, and at Roughton near Swindon. They are found in the lower greensand or upper neocomium series in the Atherfield clay at Stopham, near Pulborough, occasionally at the junction of the Hythe and Sandgate beds, and in the Folkestone beds at Farnham. At Woburn, Leighton, Ampthill, Sandy, Upware, Wicken and Potton, near the base of upper neocomium iron sands, there is a band between six and two feet in thickness, containing coprolites. These consist of phosphatized wood, bones, casts of shells, and shapeless lumps. The coprolytic stratum of the Speton clay on the coast to the north of Flamborough Head is included by Professor Judd with the Portland beds of that formation. In 1864, two phosphatic deposits, a limestone three foot thick with beds of calcium phosphate and a shale of half that thickness, were discovered by Hope Jones in the neighbourhood of Cumgallon, about sixteen miles from Oswestry. They are at a depth of about twelve feet, in slaty shale containing clandalo fossils and contemporaneous felspathic ash and scoriae. A specimen of the phosphatic limestone analysed by A. Volker yielded 34.92% tricalcium phosphate, a specimen of the shale 52.15%. Note, Report of the British Association, 1865, end note. Phosphatic beds, supposed to have had a coprolytic origin, are found in the lower Silurian rocks of Canada. End of selected entries for the letter C from the Encyclopaedia Britannica.